We're here. It's Monday. It's the Religious Studies Project. I'm Christopher Carter. I'm David Robertson. And you... Say your name. Three, two, one. Pleasure to meet you. And it's great to have you on the programme. The other uh, guest we've got on the programme today is Mary Jo Neitz. And she's speaking to Martin Lepage on the subject of gender, queer theory and religion. Take it away, Martin and Mary. I am here uh, to, today with uh, Dr. Mary Jo Knights, who is a, a professor in uh, the Women's and Gender Studies uh, Department at the University of, Mis- of Misery, USA. Uh, Dr. Knights, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being uh, with me today. We are at the ISSR conference in uh, Louvain-la-Neuve, Belgium. Uh, let me start by asking, um, what is gender? How does it manifest in society or in, in our culture or in culture in general? Um, I think when we talk about gender, we're talking about um, uh, people's identification uh, in, in terms of um, originally sort of masculinity, femininity, and um, the, the uh, various um, um, behaviors and um, uh, internalized attitudes that um, people use to orient to each other along a kind of, of, a, of a, um, a line of, of, um, of, of uh, uh, mas- masculinity, femininity. How would you s- s- say that uh, gender is different from the category of sex, for example? When uh, maybe when we think about uh, Judith Butler's work, mm-hmm. maybe how does she? Maybe what's her perspective on that, and what is yours? Well, I think Butler has been enormously important because uh, when I first started, when I was your age, uh, one of the things that was really radical was to say that uh, that um, gender was socially constructed, but sex was not. And so we could make this separation between a biological level, which was... Um, Mm, uh, essential and naturalized, and that was sex. But that uh, societies created these um, uh, behaviors and dispositions uh, organized along the lines of sex, and we understood that to be socially constructed. Now, what Butler did was Butler said, um, of course, coming along after um, the uh, post-structuralist uh, explosion and said that uh, it, it's, it is all constructed, it's all language, and there's nothing, um, n- no way, there's no base, there's no essential natural base. And so so I think um, whereas uh, when I started teaching in 1980, I used to give these lectures about this is sex, this is gender, is uh, gender is cultural, sex is biological, 
um, let's not pay too much attention to the biological. And of course, it didn't, to say it's biological, I think, even, even in that earlier period, did not mean that there were only two sexes. But there was this sense that it was biologically given. And I think that what Butler has done is said that that's not a useful, that's, um, that's not, that's not useful. We have, it's more useful to understand, uh, that piece as also, uh, constructed. However, the theory is complicated because some some people have taken the theory and uh, have thought that to say that it's constructed means that um, that it's um, easy to change. And I, I actually don't read Butler that way. I think that that um, that Butler understands the uh, the way that socially constructed. Um, identities, in fact, can um, can can become very hardened and restrictive. Certain experiences of becoming, uh, as one grows into adulthood, and also living in a society in which those um, those constructing processes occur, uh, uh, can be very, uh, in fact, very restrictive. It isn't. It is, I mean, I think sometimes. Um, sometimes when young people first encounter these ideas, they think that means I can, you know, I can, I can be, I can have my feminine self today, and then this evening I'm going to a party and I'm going to be my my uh, very masculine. You know, that isn't that isn't. Uh, I don't think that's quite what Butler's saying. A yes. long answer, sorry. I kind of <laughs> no, it's excellent. Um, on on that note, I'm I'm thinking about a lot of the critiques that. Butler has received through the years, uh, asking her, but what about the body? What about corporeality? Mm-hmm. If everything in, is language, what happens, what's, what happens to the body in all of that? Where is the body in all of that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, I think Butler has tried to, um, to respond. And I, I, um, of course, Butler's a philosopher, and that's a different discipline than than our discipline. But I, I think um, she she argues that language language works on and with the body, and that uh, it isn't that the body doesn't matter, but that um, but that language um, the body's uh, still has to be internalized. I mean, sorry, the body still has to be interpreted. I th- I think uh, essentialism is very powerful, and I think um, in the in the U.S. and probably in Canada as well that um, even though essentialist arguments are critiqued, that uh, that essentialism is very persuasive. <laughs> And certainly in the United States in the last, um, let's say, two decades, it's been very politically useful. So, um, you know, the argument that um, I was born this way, that my body, so that I, I don't, I, I am not a rebel, I am not um, against the ways of society, but I was made this way, and so... Um, you just have to accept me the way I am, and so uh, we, we do that. 
you know, especially with sexuality, so in that the, so much of the GLBT movement is it kind of reifies the body, even though there's a challenge to essentialism. It's like, well, um, don't criticize me; just accept me because I was I was born this way. I I, uh, I can't change, and I I, I think that that um, that. On a theoretical level, we read Butler and we go, oh, yes. <laughs> and then on a political level, there's this uh, very, there's this very strong push to um, employ these essentialist arguments. I don't know if you find that in Canada, but that's... Yes, yes. This is also something that is very much present in popular culture. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of a very pop. Your singer who's made that line, born this way, her, uh, her, her tagline, if I can say, uh, in that sense, the idea of, well, you, you said two things. You said I was born this way, but you also said I was made this way. And I hear behind that something that can be very much interpreted as religious about the nature of human existence of human beings um what co- connections can you make between uh this this queer theory and uh the study of religion well um on the one hand i think that um you can use uh, queer theory to critique religion on the other hand um in, in my work, I am always uh, looking for those places where there's a possibility of resistance, there's a possibility of opening up uh, possibilities. So ra- rather than taking a attack in my work of, of uh, looking at how repressive religion is, I, I, I have been interested in um, uh, where are the possibilities for um, um, you know queering queer religion queering religion uh, how is it that how is it that um, beliefs uh, about uh, sacred power um, However, those beliefs are held, you know, if they're held lightly or, uh, or deeply, uh, how, how is it that those beliefs can, you know, can open up a space? And so when I was, when I was, um, interested in the pagans and, uh, um, the women's spirituality, um, I was interested in, um, how, um, in some ways, Believing enabled uh, people to play with a whole set of categories. It, it sometimes allows for, in certain circumstances, for playing with the categories. And I certainly uh, saw that in, in among the pagans. Not all that, I mean, the pagans could also reinforce traditional categories, but there were, there were these moments where, where there was definitely playing with, playing with the categories and, um, and I think you've seen that in your in your own work. That's been kind of a focus for you. Yes. Um, but I'm also interested in how uh, um, in looking in um, 
my experience is more with Christi- with Christians. I don't know about how this would work in in other non-Christian religions, but I, 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 where where are the places that the opening up to the sacred allows allows um, allows people to play with uh, heteronormative categories? I'm interested in these really contradictory locations. You know, like, um, I, I, are you, do you use the, do you talk about the Queen parishes? The um, Anglican and High Church um, Roman Catholic congregations where, uh, that have a, a kind of very ceremonial High Church mm. um, uh, presentation, and, and the, the, they have a congregation that's very attractive to, to gay men, even within a tradition that is, you know, we would say anti-gay. So, uh, but there's, there is, um, you know, you have the priest up there in the dress, and uh, you know, all of this aesthetic um, manipulation and um, uh, kind of a performance there. And uh, and I, uh, how, what happens between those men who come to the church and the you know, they're a church that rejects them, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, and the performance of the of the man who uh, you know who is um, bridging categories in a way, um, maybe not consciously, but I've also seen it done, you know, consciously. I I, um, um, I studied another um, a gay church called Agape. That uh, it's in the Midwest region, in, where I live in the United States, and um, it was an explicitly gay church, and it had um, the the pastor uh, uh, had a male partner who was also a member of the church, and it was very welcoming to families. Um, and um, uh, the pastor was such a performer, you know, he you could tell he just. Uh, he, um, I, I had a researcher I was working with doing the field notes, and she wrote her to field notes. You know, uh, this is really a drag performance. <laughs> this, this, what he does in the pulpit. You know, it's, and uh, I, I said, well, you know, that's good in your field notes. I'm not sure we can publish that in the paper, <laughs> but, but um, you know, so to, um, and, and for, and certainly he was a self-consciously gay man using that. That space to do a performance, and so, um, so you know, not actually being a philosopher like Judith Butler. My question is, how, I'm an ethnographer, so um, how is it that I can use what Judith Butler says um, about um, uh, gender and use it to see things in a different way, and? Um, and bring that seeing to our discipline, you know, to the study of religion. How, um, what, so, you know, let's start with the gay priest, uh, his gender and sexuality there. Okay. That, that was my question. What was he performing exactly? Um, well, he was, I mean, he, he, he was, utterly serious about his role as a priest. Um, and he was utterly serious about his uh, transmission of the sacred to this uh, 
congregation, which was a very interesting congregation because this was not an affluent congregation. The circuit was a kind of working poor, ordinary gay people, not not the ones you see on TV, you know, not the, mm-hmm. the wealthy. <laughs> we know those people exist, but it's not everybody. So this, so this, in a, in a way, um, that he brought the sacred to these people who didn't always ex- who felt excluded on both class and and um, uh, the de- and felt somewhat stigmatized because of their their um, sexual orientation. So um, and the people in the church, um, many of them had children, and so they came with their children, and he blessed them as families. And this was. Um, it was 15 years ago, so being a gay family was not, I, mean, I can't say it's easy now, but it's, you know, not, not. it was harder, more stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a time when they they were stigmatized on several counts, he brought grace in, and, um, um, you know, God's love into their life. But he, he, he both recognized them as... Um, uh, worthy of love and of God's love and, and sacredness, and he also um, um, did not hide his own sexuality mm. and um, um, his um, relished uh, the stoles and satins and. Elaborate. I mean, elaborate. This was not someone who went with just a you know an open collared shirt hmm. and ordinary clothes. No, he was all you know. He had all of the ritual clothing and um, uh, very extravagant uh, gestures and you know kind of the um, and very. Um, um, uh, a kind of a common interesting. I don't like the word androgynous because it implies kind of sexless, but kind of a very a, a performance that I mean, clearly this was a man, but uh, but clearly embraced a range of expressiveness that we might more commonly associate with women in you know in in our society. Very expressive, very uh, flamboyant, very uh, 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 sensual. Uh, in in his way of of performing rituals and his his appearance and his uh, engagement with this you know this small kind of poor congregation so very mm. you know very plain with seriously serious serious play but yes. but kind of uh, transgressing um, gender norms in some ways in in in, in, in that environment. Yes. Do you think that uh, queer studies could bring this transgression of the norms into the study of religion? Well, I, I think so. I mean, I I think it would be interesting to to do two things. One is to look for those places where the transgressions are occurring, and um, and you know bring them into the discourse. I think that would be excellent. And then the other thing is, it's always kind of fun to then flip it, you know. So um, so 
Then we look at standard performances and we say, okay, how is that? This is what we do in queer theory, right? We, uh, first of all, we, we, we say what you think is normal is actually, um, um, I don't know, do you use that marked, unmarked? Okay, so uh, clearly the person I just described in the Agape Church, marked, right? Mm-hmm. Marked congregation, marked pastor, a minority church, marked, marked, marked all over the place. And then we go into this other church, which is an unmarked church, and then we say, Oh, very interesting. Look at how this is a gendered performance. Look at how this is a, this is a performance that enacts a certain kind of, you know, um, sexuality, a certain way of embodiedness. And so, does that, yes. does, does that make sense? Yes, completely. Uh, and I think in regards to, to that, you uh, presented a paper uh, at the uh, ISSR conference this week about religion and emotion. Um, about a new framework for understanding religious cultures. Um, This binary that you spoke about is not entirely about gender or sexes. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of oppositions in the study of of religion. Uh, What can you say about that? Oh, well, thank you so much for asking about that. (laughs) Well, I, uh, and this is, of course, not unique to me. I think a, a lot of us now are are much more are are um, aware that emotion and affect are things that we have not attended to very much as social scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think um, as a as a scholar of religion, then of course I want to bring this into my own field. And um, um, I think. Um, there's been a tendency to um, in in the U.S. Uh, that the sociology of religion has been really um, marked in so many ways by the strong focus on Protestantism, and so when we say religion, we really are thinking about Protestants. Um, a lot of Protestantism is it is very organized around uh, the book and the preacher. And so, yes. and so, um, so there is a kind of way that, that you can talk meaningfully about the importance of belief and, and a mark of being a Protestant is to believe certain things. You know, if you're an evangelical, you believe three things. You know, you have, so that, um, Protestantism is a form of religion that consciously de-emphasized the sensory elements, you know, no incense, uh, for a while, there was no musical instruments, uh, no pictures. I was just in the, in the Netherlands, and all the churches are bare. You know, they just stripped them, took all the paintings out, all the images. That's not Protestant. So, um, mm. so Protestantism. Now, of course, some of them didn't do that, and others brought the images back in. But not as they still uh, there's that there's that emphasis on belief is very core. Groups that. Um, emphasize experience and um, you know the, so the, the sign of I studied Pentecostals for a while and and um, you know you were supposed to have some kind of experience it wasn't about saying I believe this these three things that makes me uh, that makes me a member of this church it was about having the experience of the Holy Spirit and and 
you know, you, there were observable signs, experiential signs, and you were supposed to have this, uh, you know, this emotional transformation. So, um, so in the context of U.S. sociology religion, um, certain kinds of religions got designated as emotional. So again, marked, unmarked. The certain religions, so um, you know, like Pentecostals, emotional. Um, Unitarians, not emotional. Uh, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, not emotional. Um, but Pentecostals, you know, they're shouting and hmm. dancing. Who knows? They're, they're, that, that's definitely emotional. And who knows about those, you know, those non-Christians. Some of those are emotional too. So Yes. Yes. So, so the other, emotion is something that belongs to the other. So what, hmm. what, um, what I want to do is a couple of things. One is that I want to say that... Um, um, all religions rely on emotion. Uh, not exclusively, that emotion and cognition work together. Mm-hmm. And that all religions rely on emotion. But that there are different emotions, so that each religion has an ideal affect. And then they have technologies that are designed to produce that ideal affect. Not that it's 100% successful and everybody has the same experience, but you know they have these ideal affects, and then they have these technologies. And so that it isn't a pejorative that so that um the religions that want a very controlled bodily state that um that's that's a different ideal affect and that and that also uh these affects might reflect different levels of arousal so some mm-hmm. some religious ideal affects have have a highly aroused um desired state others want a very the ideal is to have, you know, you want to feel peaceful, calm. You go to yoga, you do your corpse pose. You know, that's kind of, that, ideally that's a low arousal state, and you're really having the appropriate religious experience if you can ex- achieve that very low arousal. Whereas in the Pentecostal church, you're supposed to have this higher. Those are both, but my point is, these are both ethics. These are these are both, and so, um, and when we look at the technologies, then. Um, you know, there's a tendency to say certain technologies are manipulative, and I want to I want to back off from that because I want to say that technologies are part of our our human work of 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 producing these um, religious states, and that um, that it's very ethnocentric to say this technology or, or these people have no technology or but this technology is manipulative so th- that that's not um that's not useful now we might want to be concerned about some of the ethics or some of the i mean i'm not saying we can't be critical but i'm <laughs> saying that um that um that we want to have um, kind of these formal categories of analysis that work across um, different kinds of religions and don't um, create these binaries of the marked, the marked group over here that's emotional, and then our group, the good group, that's 
not emotional as if that's not a good thing, or that these people are manipulative and they produce that emotional state, and this one is not manipulative. So I'm going on. Anyway, that's it. Well, uh, let us keep going uh, on that. How does this apply to a scholar, a researcher, an ethnographer like uh, like you, um, to uh, to his or her uh, object of study? How does this apply to the way that they look and they analyze? the religion, the culture that they're looking at. Mm. We are subject to those technologies when we are in the settings. On the other hand, I think um, our observer brain is also often present as well. I think it, um, that, that it's, a, it's, it's an ambiguous um, situation. Is that what you're... Yes. Yeah. Is this what she, what you touched on um, in your 2013 uh, article about the importance of uh, the location of the researcher and the location of the object? Um, Or am I yeah, misunderstanding? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, yes, I think that um, in in that piece, um, I I was. The uh, I was invited to write this piece, and uh, the editors of the journal were concerned that sociologists of religion had become too supportive of religion, and we weren't critical enough. And so I was just kind of interrogating what it means to be critical. And it seemed to me that there were different expectations of different kinds of scholars. So um, in the social scientists, sciences, um, uh, the idea that uh, you can be study your own group is, a, is um, I think, more accepted now, but there was, a, there was a period when that was a somewhat suspect um, suspect. Um, And um, it, it seemed to me that when I looked at it, that it was suspect if your group was a suspect group. <laughs> Then it was suspect for you to study it. But uh, again, in my context where, um, in the U.S., where sociology of religion is so dominated by, by Protestants, you know, if you were grew up in a Protestant family and maybe even continued to go to church um, and you studied Protestants in the U.S. You know, nobody said nativism. You know, mm -hmm. you are, you are, you are. This is your. You're going native. You are, you are native, or, yeah. or you know, that, that mm -hmm. kind of criticism is never. If it's if you're a member of the dominant group, then there isn't that concern with your with you're outside of. And um, however, if you're um, if you're studying, um, if you come from the outside and you join the group, then you've gone native. So if you're yeah. native or you go native, then you're very suspect. What matters for the criticism is the status of the group. So if you're in, if you, um, if you, um, if you're Jewish and you're studying Jews, then, you know, then you have an insider bias 
Um, <laughs> and it, and even the categories of what it means to be an insider or an outsider, of course, very complicated. And if you grew up in a tradition, even though you're, you may uh, not go to services anymore, or it may have to be someone. Are you still a member? What's your? So I, I think, uh, I, I think, on the one hand, um, the status of the group matters, and then the location of the researcher matters. Uh, and I kind of wanted to problematize um, the way that we've used those categories in the past. Okay, great. Well, uh, maybe. One last small question, if I may say,、uh, how do you see those <clears throat> those connections between the study of religion and the study of、uh, the gender or queer theory, or、uh, well, in, in, not any kind of theory that is derived from fe- feminism, but this idea that、uh, sex and gender are socially constructed categories. Uh, in, in, in regards to Butler's work, who's、uh, who's about discourse and performativity,、mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> how do you see this connection evolve in the future of religious studies? Well, f- yeah, no, I think that's a really good question, and I, of course,、um, can't predict the future. But I think <laughs> one of the things that it, it's interesting that I would say the most influential. Use of Butler in the study of religion is、um, Mahmud, and so、yeah. what is so fascinating about that is、um, it, it goes completely in a different direction. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's it's a use of Butler, but then it's it's also, and it's of course extremely challenging to、um, Western liberal thought, um, um, but it it. It takes a, a perspective that comes out of Butler, and um, and um, for a project, and then raises the question of what is a liberatory project.、Mm-hmm. And、um, so, you know, I think that、um, when I first read Butler, I would not have predicted that that would be the most influential piece applying her work in our. In our field,、hmm. so、um, so I think uh,、um, it's very hard to predict. Yes, and I think Mahmoud has been very challenging, and uh, I I、um, I I、uh, I think that wherever it goes, whatever uses of Butler we find that.、Um, They will make us think, and they will be very challenging. Dr. Knight, thank you so much. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> thank you again. Thanks very much for that, Martin. Wonderful to hear you again. It was a very productive conference.、Um, That was in、uh, that was in Belgium, and、uh, so where Martin recorded those interviews with、uh, Radio Nets. And with、um, Meredith McGuire and Anna Fideli, so、um, do check those out in our archive.、Um, and thank you for that, Martin.、Um, we didn't mention the BASR at the start of the podcast, so just mention that we are presented in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions. And next week we'll be presenting an interview that David recorded at the International Association for the History of Religions.、Uh, really looking forward to this interview, and I would have been, you know. 
in a in a world where I didn't have a PhD thesis to write, money to earn, numerous deadlines missed, um, I probably would have wanted to write the response to it. Tell us a bit about it, David. Well, it's um, with uh, Koku von Stukrad, um, obviously a, a pretty major academic nowadays, but I've been a fan of his work on discursive approaches to the study of religion for a number of years. Um, he informed my PhD. And it's looking at uh, how we can apply the linguistic turn to the study of religion and how specifically it solves a number of the problems that we have uh, in the study um, in terms of trying to define the essence of what religion is. I'm sorry, I'm just giggling as I remember um, reading one of his articles where he was uh, making the distinction between studying religion and discourse on religion, and he had a um, sort of lexical device of, of writing religion in capital letters when he was referring to the discourse about it. So I was like, will you be discussing religion or religion? Um, yeah, both. Most, mostly <laughs> religion! Um, Excellent. With, with a capital, and I'll be sitting overdubbing capital R religion over every. No, I won't. Really. Um, but it's a it's a it's a very good interview, one which I had wanted to do for a number of years. Um, we didn't want to do it over Skype, so we uh, eventually managed to sit down at the IAHR and record that. I have a question for you, David. Yes. Which one of you was better dressed? I was on this occasion. It was Koku. Mm. I I found. Germany to be much too hot. I was rather dishevelled, but um, <laughs> we were both wearing suits. Yeah, he's a he's a sharp dressed man he's, in he the words a, of a ZZ Tom. He's a sharp dressed man, one of the best dressed man men in academia. Um, we we waited on and, and kept you entertained there, listeners. Um, we've got a response this week from uh, Karen De Vries. Um, should be good. Thanks to Kevin for setting that up, and uh, thanks to Venetia for running our social media. Uh, Facebook and Twitter primarily. There's a sort of dying Google Plus page there somewhere. Yes, but, um, or it's just called Google Plus, I think. <laughs> it's, it's all dying as far as I can see. So do check us out on yeah, the social media. She does a great job at keeping those um, those feeds filled with information if you need a an extra fix. Uh, she feeds the feeds. She does. Um, yeah. Remember Amazon. Um, I know lots of us you know, think we should be using independent um, booksellers and independent um, stores, um, and you know we would certainly support that. But equally, um, sometimes you just got to get your product, you got to get it fast, you got to get it easily. When you do, use our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links. Won't cost you anything more. Makes us lots of dough, indeed, and helps support the project at no extra cost to yourself. But other than that, I think the only thing left to say is thanks for listening. <laughs>